0: So if you've ever done any public speaking, um, which most people are terrified of, uh, I was, uh, what you know is that the group of people that you're speaking to and their reaction, like, really matters. Most people that speak in front of people, whether it's in a business setting, in a church, feed off the energy from the group. And so as I look out at a group this size each week, there are some that are like really leaning in and you can tell like you're engaged, you're nodding your head, you're like, yes, I love it. There are others uh that are sleeping and which is fine, you know, but but I just again I, I've said this several times, like I'm high, like I, I can see you, like even in the back. But if I can give you a nap, that's fine. I've helped you, so I, I'm here to help you. <clears throat> others you sit and listen with your arms crossed and, and like, yep, you know, that's gonna be a tough one. Uh, others um, get up and walk out, and so I think, are they going to the bathroom or are they mad? You just, you just don't know. But there's always a reaction of some sort. Today's passage from the book of Colossians always gets a reaction. We are in the middle of a series called Holding It Together. We're walking through the book of Colossians. The key text for our series is Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, in which the Apostle Paul writes, speaking of Jesus, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this weekend, chapter 3, is going to move us from life in the church to life in the home. And so here's where we're going to go this morning. First, I'm just going to read the passage. Then I just want to have a quick conversation on the importance of biblical interpretation. Because every time we open up the Bible to read it, we become interpreters. Then we're going to talk for a moment about ancient first century households, and then I'm going to attempt to apply this passage by bringing it all together in everyday life in the year 2021. So, ready? Here we go. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You still with me? Okay. Check. Husband loves your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Masters provide... Your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, the contention in this passage comes from two words the first is the word submit, and the second is the word slave. This passage has been misused, abused, misapplied, and misinterpreted for centuries. Pre-Civil War, Christian churches used this passage to defend the practice of slavery. Historically, men have used this passage to abuse and oppress women. That's why I believe it is critical that we understand the art of biblical interpretation Now, I need you to hang in with me because we're going to get a bit heady for just a moment. All right. And I I don't want us to get lost because like a couple weeks ago, I was at our student ministry and it was their annual student panel in which they bring in six or seven of us to sit up here and students can write questions on cards and then we try to answer them. So this happened a couple weeks ago. I was on the panel and every time a really hard question was asked, everyone on the panel looked at me. And so I did my very best to answer the questions in ways that I felt were appropriate and honest. And when it was all over, I was leaving with my son, Ryan, who was also here. He's 13. And so I looked at him because it was all teenagers. And I said, hey, buddy, how did your dad do? Was that was that good? And he said, dad, he goes, you got nerdy. And I had no idea what you were talking about. (laughs) So my attempt is to avoid that today. in theology, the study of biblical interpretation is called hermeneutics. Not that that's important for you to know, but it makes me feel smart. Hermeneutics. For today's passage, there are three interpretive considerations that I think are vitally important to help us understand it. The first is the difference between cultural and transcultural ideologies in the Bible. Now, Cultural is a reference to something that is stated in the Bible that is for that time and the culture that it was written in. It is very timely. That does not minimize the inspiration or authority of the scripture, but there are things in the Bible that were specifically for the time it was written. For instance, in the book of First Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy, Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illness. Now, personally, I have no problem using a little wine, but if I have chronic stomach ailments, I'm not just going to drink wine. I'm going to go to my doctor. Hopefully, he'll scope me and find out what's actually happening. That is a very timely thing. It was written to a specific person at a specific time for a specific reason. Same could be said of slavery. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. This passage is not endorsing slavery. The Apostle Paul is speaking to something that was happening in culture. The Bible is meeting culture where it is. Because the truth is, none of us here have slaves. And if you do, and I find out, I'm calling the police, right? Right? I also want you to understand that culturally, slavery in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it wasn't always race-based. Most people in the Roman Empire that had a slave, their slave was the same race as them. In the Roman Empire, there were more slaves than there were citizens, and not all slavery was forced. Some people sold themselves into slavery because, well, they were broke and they needed work, and this was their only option. What we do see in the Scripture, however, is is the moving towards something better. Some passages were written specifically to the culture of that day. Now, I think sometimes we try to make it fit. I've heard sermons given on this passage and they've tried to compare slavery to like the work environment. And though you may feel like a slave at work, like there is no comparison between the modern-day work environment and ancient slavery. To try and make them fit together, it doesn't work at all because it's two very, very different things. There are some passages that are culturally confined. They are time-bound truth. They are temporal. They are not transferable, and they were written for that day. Then there are passages that are transcultural, which means they transcend all of time, all of culture, all of history. They are timeless. They contain kingdom values. They are beyond cultural limits. For example, a moment ago, Tara read John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave us one and only son. That passage transcends all of time. It is timeless in nature. Whether a passage is cultural or transcultural, again, that does not minimize the authority, the inspiration of the scripture. Secondly, it's important to notice the redemptive movement in the Bible. The Bible says of itself that it is alive and active. There is movement to it. In the scripture, God chose to meet people in their culture, but also with the intention of moving them towards something better, namely redemption, moving towards greater love and greater compassion. Listen, if you understand the cultural reality of the ancient world, what you would discover is that people were treated very, very differently in the Bible than today. Women were treated horrifically. Children were considered property. And yet the arc and the narrative of the scripture reveals a counter-cultural movement to the Bible. It is a movement that is incredibly empowering, So by the time we move from the Old Testament to Jesus and the New Testament, Jesus himself embraces women in ways that would have been shocking to the cultural, and it becomes evidently clear that slavery is just not okay in any way. So what we're going to notice in today's passage is there is a movement, first of all, in marriage. Because marriages were arranged, they were transactions. We're going to move from that to sacrificial love. We're also going to notice the movement of kids from being property to kids becoming loving members of the home, and there is going to be a movement to abolish the despicable practice of slavery. Even the phrase, treat your slaves well, would have been unheard of in the ancient day when the apostle Paul wrote it. And finally, in order to apply this, you've got to understand the spirit of the text that you're reading it is very easy to get gridlocked with isolated words in a text. So, for instance, we hear the word submit. The moment some of you hear the word submit, you're like, I'm done listening, Mike. You can stop now. I've had women say, don't you dare use that verse in my marriage ceremony. And as a result, we completely miss the spirit of the text. Because this is what the text is actually saying. Here is the spirit of Colossians chapter 18 verses, Colossians chapter 3 verse 18 through 4-1. This is the spirit of the text. You're going to get all your money's worth right now, right? Write this down. You can, you can walk out right now if you want because everything else I say is going to be this. You ready? Here's what Colossians is saying. Treat each other well. And right? that's it. That's what he's saying. That's what the passage is speaking to. Because you're followers of Jesus Christ, especially because you're followers of Jesus Christ, in your home, treat each other well. Now, the ancient household is very different than the modern household. In my home, there's me, my wife, my two kids, my dog, and two fish. That's our house. In the ancient house, it would have been the married couple, would have been their kids, potentially their spouses and their kids, extended family, employees, and slaves all living together in the same household, which is why we get the robust nature of the passage. So as we consider the culture, the movement of scripture, and the spirit of the text, I want to apply this now like to life today in 2021. In verse 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul begins first by speaking to marriage, and he essentially says, in your marriage, make a commitment to us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Marriage in the first century had absolutely nothing to do with attraction, with love or feelings. It was arranged. It was a business transaction. The rank of men and the subordination of women was the culture of the pagan Roman world. So the redemptive movement of scripture enters this culture and moves the relationship. It's no longer superior and subordinate, but it is a sacred partnership. The commitment then is no longer defined by what makes me happy or what I can get out of them, but the commitment is to the marriage itself. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, the Apostle Paul, in another one of his letters, begins to unpack what it means to submit. This is what he writes. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also, wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, died for her. In other words, yield to one another for the sake of a mature and growing relationship. My friend, Dr. Rick Marks, who has spoken out here on multiple occasions, he's a clinical psychologist and an ordained pastor, he calls this us, this yielding. If you've ever been a part of any of his work, he goes on to make four statements about us-ness in a relationship. The first is this. He goes on to say that it takes two to make us and one person to kill it. He also says the way that you know us is in the house is you can feel its presence and you can feel its absence. In my home, there have been times when us was clearly not present. Years ago, when I was working in Colorado as a pastor, I had a couple come in to see me in the evening. They were having a marriage crisis, and so I sat with them trying to work through their crisis. Uh, it went later and later into the evening, and I forgot to call my wife and tell her I was going to be late. She had dinner on the table. The kids are waiting. She's waiting. She's waiting. One hour goes by, two hours go by, three hours go by, and when I finally walk in the door, us was not at home. <laughs> and I could feel it. The key to ensuring us is present is always humility. When I, when I do a premarital session with couples that I'm going to marry, I always require four sessions I begin by saying I want to share with you something that will exponentially reduce the chances that you will ever utter the word divorce. Matter of fact, this is almost a money back guarantee. If you'll do this, I can almost, I can't guarantee anything, but I can almost promise the words divorce will never leave your lips. Do you want to know what it is? And they'll say, well, yeah, of course you want to know what it is. Well, it's a really old idea. It's about 2,000 years old. It's actually in the Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Just imagine for just one moment if he would value her above himself in humility and if she would value him above herself, in humility. Who wouldn't want to be in a relationship like that? That's the mission statement of us. Because pride, resentment, and selfishness will keep us from ever growing. When the scriptures say that two shall become one, we then have this new, fulfilling, Satisfying relationship called us, but it does require something from me. Because marriage is a sacred bond. And now, listen, I am not, I'm not minimizing pain. I, I, I recognize that in a church this size there are many painful scenarios. Some of you have walked through the tragedy of your own divorce. You've experienced that pain and that hurt. You've experienced abuse. I'm not minimizing any of those things. There is a reality to human interaction. But sometimes we give up way too fast and way too easy. Because guess what? Marriage is hard. Now, my marriage, it's the most satisfying thing I have in my life. My marriage couldn't be better than it is right now. But it's hard. It's been hard. You want to hold it together in your family? Make a commitment to us first. Then the Apostle Paul goes on to speak to the kids. The kids he says, "Honor your parents." Colossians 3:20. Children obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. When I was a youth pastor, years ago I gave a talk to our youth group on honoring your parents. And I thought it was a good talk as far as youth talks go about honoring your parents. And afterwards, this teenager walked up to me, I'd never seen him before, and he looked me in the eye and he said to me, and I quote, Mike, while you were talking about honoring and obeying your parents, I wanted to walk up to you and smash your face with a brick. And I said, well, thank you for not doing that. Then he went on to say, my parents are violently abusive, why would I ever want to honor them? Like, I didn't know how to answer that question. I actually still don't know how to answer that question, but what I do believe is that most parents, most parents really are trying their best with what they have. Now, there are some things I know to be true. You want to honor your parents. Here are some ways. First of all, you should honor your parent because without them, you wouldn't be here. Like, their unique DNA made you And without the unique combination of them, there would be no you. You can also honor your parents because I realize and they realize they're not perfect. We're all flawed. But generally speaking, most parents love their kids. I also know that as your relationship grows, as you grow, as you age, your relationship with your kids and your parents change. It's like as you get older, the relationship you have with your parents is very different. Like say, as, as children, like elementary school and under, I honor my parents by obeying them. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. There have been moments in which my children did not obey me, and it did not go well with them. There was an incident years ago when they were little in elementary school. We had a doctor appointment. They had to have a shot. They didn't want to get a shot. They cried. They're scared of needles. Dad, don't make us do this. There was the negotiating. There was the fighting. There was the tears. I said, it's happening. The nurse is coming. Sit down. The nurse walked in with her tray with two needles on them. My children saw the needles and lost their minds. You would have thought that we said, we're about to cut off all your limbs with no anesthesia. The way they reacted, you would have you would have thought, I, I don't know. It was so bad, in fact, and my wife was nowhere to be found, which I still don't know how that happened. It was just me. <laughs> the nurse with her tray looks me in the eye and she goes, oh, you got to do something about that. And she walked out <laughs> of the room. I'm not making this up. And I looked at those kids and I'm like, we could have been done by now. No, I don't make this up. No. And so a few minutes later she comes back with her tray they're freaking out she said are you ready I said yes I grabbed the first one I bear hugged him pulled up the sleeve I said go she gave him a shot chucked that kid to the side grabbed the next one pulled the arm up I said go shot in their arm she leaves and then my children have the audacity to say to me oh that wasn't that bad when they got home it did not go well with them They did not enjoy long life on the earth. (laughs) As teenagers, we honor our parents by respecting them. So to all the teenagers, I'm just going to give you some crazy wisdom. It's free. This is a gift to you. You ready if you're a teenager? Listen, if you're joining us online, you're a teenager. You are not as smart as you think you are. (laughs) And your parents are not as dumb as you assume they are. We honor our parents by respecting them and how we talk to them. I was at the mall, and I saw this, I think it was a mother and daughter, at least that was my assumption. She's probably 14. Mom was probably in her 30s. And this kid was talking to her, cussing her out, calling her names I can't say in church, and I'm like, am I seeing this right? How is that happening? We respect our parents by listening to them. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 1. Proverbs is the book of wisdom. This is what it says. Intelligent children listen to their parents. And foolish children do their own thing. Listen, I've been a teenager. Our parents have wisdom and life experience that we do not possess. And if I would have listened to my parents, I would have saved myself so much pain and so much trouble would have saved myself, well, we'll just leave it there. As an adult, I honor my parents by appreciating them and their effort. You know how much effort it is to be a parent? Like my parents' life would have been so much easier if they didn't have my brothers. It just would have been, <laughs> I'm an angel. The sacrifice parents make, did, did you know, I looked into some calculations, on average, to raise a child from birth to 18 costs roughly $249,000. And that doesn't cover college, and that doesn't cover when they come home after college because they can't find a job. So I've got two kids, 249,000 times two. Like, that's my lake house I want. <laughs> I'm 46 years old, and I call my mom four or five times a week. Why? It's how I honor her. So I honor my parents. Then the Apostle Paul moves to parents. And he essentially says to parents, Parents, fight for the heart of your kids. Colossians chapter 3, verse 21. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Now, first it's important to note that that word father, when you look into the language of the Bible, which the original language is the Greek language, that word father can be interpreted as father, or it can also be mean and is used to, as the word parent. So it could be father or parent. So parents, don't do anything that will embitter exasperate or irritate your children in a way that leads to a broken spirit. Fight for their heart. The heart is the center of our being. There are lots of things in our culture that are fighting for the heart of your kids. In our fight, we as adults, as parents, often use tools that do not work. Have you ever tried to do a job Perform a task with the wrong tool. It doesn't work. I, uh, I live in a neighborhood in which everyone keeps their property fairly pristine. And so I try my best. Everyone in my neighborhood edges their sidewalk. Everyone but me. So after 12 years, I thought maybe I should do that. So I went out to try and do it with a, with a weed eater or a weed whacker, whatever we call it in Wisconsin. It just didn't work because the grass had gotten so thick and so overgrown, it just would not, it just wouldn't do it. Well, it was the wrong tool. So what I did was I went over to Home Depot and I rented an edger. And guess what? It worked. It looks okay, but it worked. It was the right tool for the job. There are some tools that we use as parents that do not work long term. One of those tools is fear. If you don't do this or if you do that, then, or else. I do think kids need an or else, but fear is a terrible motivator in the fight for the heart. I want my children to respect me. I don't want them to be afraid of me. There's a second tool that we use that never works, and it's all wrapped up in a phrase that I hate. There there is a phrase that we say as people that I despise. When I hear it, every part of me cringes. This is the phrase. Shame on you. Oh, I hate that phrase. I've gotten letters in which someone ended the note with, Mike, shame on you. And I just... (coughs) I hate that phrase. It is such a belittling phrase as if the shamer is better than the shamee. Shame doesn't work. It breaks the hearts of kids. I have, in 18 years, I have never said to my children, shame on you. No, I've said, that was really stupid and you're going to have to pay the consequences of that choice. But I've never said, shame on you. What a horrible phrase. Another tool that doesn't work is when we try to become our kids' buddy or their best friend. You're not their best friend. You're their parent. When my children talk to me in a way that they would talk to their friends, I say, dude, I am not your buddy. I'm your dad. I'm way more committed than your friends. I love you more than they'll ever possibly love you. I'm not your buddy. Do not talk to me like I'm your buddy. I'm your dad. Now, that may change as you get older and you become adults, but every time I've seen a parent try to be their kid's best buddy, it goes horribly wrong. So how then do we fight for the heart of our kids? Well, it begins when we, in all circumstances and in all ways, we love. Everything is centered from love. The other day, my wife, Rebecca, asked one of our kids to not do something, and they said, why? So she calm, coolly, and collectively explained why, in a way that I thought was very informational. And to that, they responded, but why? So again, she broke it down a little bit more, a little more detail, which was very well done. And then my child said to my wife, yeah, but why? And finally I said, she just told you three times why? What's wrong with you? (laughs) That's not this. That's not loving. If I love in my interactions, if I love them by giving them my time, but also love them in setting of boundaries, loving in my correction, and loving in my discipline. Another tool that actually works is when we listen intently to our kids. I mean, do we really, it's Spanish, do we really hear our kids when they talk? For years, my kids would talk and I'd cut them off, and finally my, my kids said, Dad, you never let us finish our sentences. Like imagine a six-year-old, Dad, you never let us finish our sentences. And they were right, I didn't. Because I thought I was right, I thought what they were saying was stupid. That's not a great way to parent. Finally, as a parent, we need to lead courageously. Imposing our will is not leadership, that's dictatorship. But neither is letting them do whatever they want. Fighting for the heart of my kids means I value the relationship more than I value being right. I value their future self more than making them happy in the moment. And it means modeling a way of life that is better than what the world has to offer. So you want to hold it together in your family? Well, first make a deep commitment to us. If you're a child... Honor your parents for it's right. And parents, do all that you can to fight for the heart of your kids because someone is. As we wrap up, um, I recognize that over the course of the weekend there are many that find themselves in difficult places with family for all kinds of reasons. And so I'd like to end today specifically by praying for you. So gracious God, we are gathered together as a church, one big family in faith. And I recognize that there are many issues that can come up within families. I thank you, oh God, for the gift of family. Family is the most life-giving, satisfying, joyous relationship that we can experience. And at the same time, our family can be the most painful hurtful deeply wounding place that we can go this morning i pray for all of those marriages that struggle for those that carry pain i pray for for children that you would help them to honor their parents for parents that we would fight for the heart of our kids and not just steamroll them or try to control them. Lord, there is so much life in the family. And I pray for every family in this church. Lord, help us to treat each other well, I pray. Amen.